In November of 2022, just five months after Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court, former Vice President Mike Pence sat down for an interview on CBS. Well, the Dobbs decision this summer that I, I was so grateful to see, the majority of which was made up by Supreme Court justices that we, uh, we appointed and confirmed to the, to the court, uh, really gave the country a new beginning for life. It was a new beginning for life, according to the most pious man in the Trump White House, a man so conservative he would not allow himself to be alone in the same room with a woman who was not his wife. Mike Pence was unafraid to be a Christian warrior. He was unafraid to call for a national abortion ban when other members of his party shied away from the issue. But then Mike Pence was asked about in vitro fertilization. There are people who are concerned that if you start with abortion access restrictions, that it will also lead to restrictions on IVF treatment. Mm. Um, If you believe life begins at conception, you can make that argument. Should it be protected as a right? The vice president began his answer with details about his and his wife's struggles with fertility and their use of IVF to conceive their children. And that led Mike Pence to this. But I fully support uh, fertility treatments, and I think they deserve the protection of the law. They gave us great uh, comfort um, uh, in those long and challenging years uh, that we struggled with infertility in our marriage. Mike Pence was a sign that Republicans should have better heeded. Overturning Roe would lead to all kinds of unforeseen consequences, consequences that even the most diehard Christian conservatives would have a hard time reconciling, consequences that would affect even their families. Now, whether Republicans wanted to bury their heads in the sand or whether they truly believed that the Christian conservatism they had injected into American law would not wreak havoc in untold ways, it appears now that they have no plan to deal with any of this. The Alabama Supreme Court ruled last week that embryos are children, and that decision has already caused multiple clinics in the state to pause their in vitro fertility services, which is just a devastating development for families in that state who are eager to have children. And even though this is only happening in Alabama so far, the political implications are vast. Because as it turns out, a lot of people across the country need fertility care, and they're not just Democrats. The New York Times estimates that over 7 million women had reported receiving infertility care, citing a CDC survey from 2019. 12% of American women. Women undergoing IVF are most likely high income and white, and they have at least some higher education. Last year, former Trump campaign manager Kellyanne Conway warned congressional Republicans about the political disaster that was looming in the wake of the Dobbs decision. Her polling showed that 86 percent of American voters support IVF. Among people who call themselves pro-life, IVF has 78 percent support. And among evangelicals, the Mike Pence's of this country, 83 percent of them support it. Republicans, independents, wealthy women, white women, all of them overwhelmingly support in vitro fertilization and are also incredibly likely to be affected by any restrictions imposed upon it. Which is why elected Republicans right now have no good answer 
or rather it's why they have no answer at all. Here is the senior senator from the state of Alabama, Tommy Tuberville. Do you have a reaction to the Alabama Supreme Court ruling on the fact that embryos are children? Yeah, I was all for it. We need to have more kids. We need to have an opportunity to do that. And this, I thought this was the right thing to do. But IVF is used to have more children. And right now, IVF services are paused at some of the clinics in Alabama. Aren't you concerned that this could impact people who are trying to have kids? Well, that's for, that's for another conversation. People need to have that. We need more kids. We need the people to, to have the opportunity to have kids. Senator, what do you say to the women right now in Alabama who no longer have access to IVF or who will not as a result of this well, well, that's a hard one. It really is. It's really hard because, uh, again, you want people to have that opportunity. And, and that's what I was telling her. We need more kids. Someone should tell the senator that if he wants people to have more kids, he might not want to support a decision that prevents people from having more kids. Yesterday morning, former Governor Nikki Haley appeared to agree with the Alabama ruling, telling NBC News that embryos are babies. And then yesterday evening, she clarified that she did not agree with the Alabama ruling. I didn't say that I agreed with the Alabama ruling. What the question that I was asked is, do I believe an embryo is a baby? I do think that if you look in the definition, an embryo is considered an unborn baby. And so, yes, I believe from my stance that that is. Republican Congressman Byron Donalds of Florida, a rising star in the GOP, appeared similarly confused, expressing support for the Alabama ruling and also IVF, which the Alabama ruling now essentially prohibits. The Alabama Supreme Court just ruled that embryos are children. Do you believe embryos are children? I do, because embryos grow into being an adults like we are. Congressman, do you believe in IVF? I think there are women who've, who've decided to seek that process, and that's a good thing. That's an important thing. The obfuscation here, the, the cluelessness, belies one fundamental truth that Republicans know well. This is a losing issue for them. When abortion rights, when reproductive rights are on the ballot, Democrats win. This has happened over and over and over again since the Dobbs ruling in Kentucky, in Ohio, in Pennsylvania. And if Republicans know this truth, so do Democrats. Vice President Kamala Harris addressed the Alabama decision this afternoon. The irony of it all is that on the one hand, these proponents are, are suggesting that an individual and a woman does not have the right to end an unwanted pregnancy, and on the other hand, does not have the right to become pregnant if that is her choice and her desire and her dream. You will be hearing a lot of that in the next nine months. In a statement today, President Biden's campaign manager said that what is happening in Alabama right now is only possible because Donald Trump's Supreme Court justices overturned Roe v. Wade. In the meantime, Donald Trump will be speaking tonight at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Nashville, Tennessee, just about 85 miles away from the state of Alabama. Whether he is asked about abortion and IVF is unknown, but either way, he'd better come up with an answer. Joining me now are Tim Miller, writer-at-large at The Bulwark, and Michelle Goldberg, opinion columnist for The New York Times. Thank you both for being here. Um, so, Michelle, <laughs> God. I mean, I will say, I'm not one to say, you know, Mike Pence is a Cassandra, but he really, I mean, not even a Cassandra, because he wasn't predicting doom. That 
2022 interview is so illustrative of the bind Republicans now find themselves in, one largely of their own making, if not completely of their own making. Um, how, what are your expectations for this issue and the 2024 election? Could it be the whole ballgame? So I think on this very narrow issue of IVF, my guess is that they try to do something to clarify it, right? I mean, in Alabama, you see there is a Republican senator who's saying, well, maybe we'll say that life doesn't begin at conception. It begins at implantation in the uterus because they're basically now running up against the totally foreseeable limits of defining a baby or defining personhood the way that they have chosen to do so, right? And this is something that everybody, all pro-choice people have been warning about for years. That that personhood language, language about life beginning at conception, it impacts abortion, but it impacts much more than abortion. It impacts birth control. It impacts infertility treatments. You know, So they might find a way to kind of square this particular circle on this narrow issue. But I think what they haven't contended with is that the practical implications of all of these laws that they've thoughtlessly passed without any real um, due diligence about kind of the actual process of human reproduction. So that, you know, you, so we see over and over again, for example, it's not just that these kind of laws impact IVF. We see that they impact miscarriage treatment. Yep. We see that they impact, you know, maternal health care. And because none of this, they, don't, they haven't thought this through because they haven't thought through both the ways that their ideology collides yes. with reality. And they just haven't really thought that much, if at all, about women's health beyond how they can control it. Right. Tim, I mean, it's like, are you winning if you're stipulating where in the uterus the embryo needs to be. I just feel like this is a really unforeseen consequence of everything the Republicans have been wishing for for decades. Yeah, I definitely feel uncomfortable talking about uterus location. So I don't assume be. Republican don't politicians. Don't be. It's, an, it's a welcoming uh, environment here, Tim. <laughs> okay, good. I love that. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, that is a problem for them. And here's the thing. I think this is a, some, a misnomer, a misunderstanding about Donald Trump's. He's won election in a long time, but but his last successful win in 2016. Back then in that campaign, there was a big group of voters that perceived him as like basically moderate. I know that that is hard for a lot of viewers of the show and, and uh, you know, others thinking people to believe. But a lot of voters looked at him. He's like, ah, he's a libertine. He's from New York. He doesn't care that much about social issues. It's these far right Christian conservatives that I don't like. And these are the, the Obama Trump voters, right? These working class voters that carried him to victory in Pennsylvania, uh, Wisconsin, et cetera. OK, fast forward a few years. Doug Mastriano runs in Pennsylvania for governor on a Christian nationalist platform, you know, with with the Roe decision hanging over him, you know, with an abortion, you know, ban at five weeks or whatever he proposed. He gets slaughtered, loses by like 18 points, 17 points. The gap between Trump and Mastriano was this perception that Trump is not a far right Christian fundamentalist like some of these others in the Republicans. That allowed him to appeal to some of the more secular working class voters that like Trump. This is so that is why this is such a huge problem with it with for him. And that's why you see him panicking about it and, you know, grasping around for for various solutions like the 16 week ban or whatever he floated in The New York Times the other day. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's that's the problem with what's happened to the Republican Party since 2016 and now. Right. The, the full throated. Um, endorsement of Christian nationalism. I mean, there are headlines, I think, in Politico that 
Trump allies prepare to infuse Christian nationalism in second Trump administration. The New York Times reporting that Trump is going to embrace a 16-week abortion ban. I mean, whether or not Trump himself is a libertine from New York, right. the party's moved deep, deep right, and Trump's along for the ride. And, you know, I've seen polls that show that there are significant numbers of voters who don't blame Trump or don't attribute the end of Roe versus Wade to Donald Trump. So this is kind of work that the Democratic Party is going to have to do over the next few months. Because although I think we all know that Donald Trump really could not care less one way or the other about abortion and, you know, has declined to say whether he's ever paid for one himself, we know that the people who are going to staff his administration and certainly staff the courts are the sort of people like this guy in Texas who came close to, who, who tried to revoke the authorization of the abortion, you know, revoke the FDA's authorization Kazmar, of the abortion bill. Judge Kazmar. Right. And this, um, you know, that Politico story was about someone who is a likely Trump chief of staff in the next administration who, you know, and they're talking about not just abortion, but contraception, no fault divorce, gay marriage. And so, and, you know, Donald Trump is obviously not a man with a great deal of attention to detail. So these are the people who are going to be essentially making policy in the next Trump administration. Uh, you in, know the, I shouldn't say the next Trump. In a next <laughs> Trump administration, <laughs> there are people God who are like us. in cardiac arrest. Uh, but, but, you know, to that end, um, Tim, oh, I almost called you Trump. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Tim, the, you know, the Trump campaign is pushing back saying, oh, these white Christian nationalists have designs on the White House, but we're the ones that are calling the shots. I don't know if that's true anymore. I mean, this is the dog that caught the car to some degree. The Supreme Court is seated. The courts are going to do what the courts are going to do. I mean, Donald Trump, does he at some point answer for that? I mean, I think it's amazing that in this moment he's going to sit down with Christian broadcasters in the state of Tennessee, less than 100 miles away from Alabama, and think that somehow this issue, if not today, if not tomorrow, sometime is going to come up and he's going to have to answer for it. Not necessarily because, you know, the fake news media is going to ask him, but because interested, you know, Christian nationalists may want to know if he's for real about it all. Yeah, the Christian news media is going to ask him about it. These uh, Christians at these events are, and they're going to want him to do that. And, and there are going to be people, uh, you know, look, there are activists out there that funded his, or excuse me, that were staffed in his last administration that are part of this Project 2025 that are planning to go into the next administration. I mean, like Michelle said, uh, Trump is not, does not have attention to detail on who is going to be these mid-level staffers at HHS that have oversight over this sort of thing. And, and we already know, again, look, he made his deal with the devil. Like, he got in in 2016 by outsourcing the judge list to the Federalist Society. And, and this is that coming payment coming due, right? Like if it wasn't true, if he wasn't in line with the far right social conservatives and all these issues, then, you know, he should have tried to put up justices that were more in line with whatever he thinks he really believes, right? And, and that was an option that would have been available to a president in 2016. He didn't do that. And so here's where we're at. Michelle, you know, you were saying that you think that Republicans in the state of Alabama will come up, will, will thread the needle effectively and say it's an embryo that's implanted in the walls of the uterus. That is Actually, I mean, you know, who knows? Well, who maybe knows? that's an oh, maybe I'm overestimating them. But <laughs> well, yeah, hard to do. Um, I, I do think, though, that even if there is a kind of um, syntactical workaround, mm -hmm. The mere threat, that, I mean, they've shut down IVF oh, procedures yeah. at the nation's, I think, eighth largest hospital. Uh, 
the threat of that is very real to families across the country. Right. And it's right? not just Alabama, because Alabama is not alone in having this kind of language that passed before Roe versus Wade about life beginning at conception. And so, yeah, kind of anybody who lives in a red state who has a fertility appointment coming up and, you know, people look for people wait for these appointments with an extraordinary amount of concern and anxiety. They're going to have to wonder whether, you know, kind of one judge's ruling or one court's ruling could throw their carefully laid plans into chaos. Indeed, you know, and and I will say this is the kind of stuff you share, these concerns, these worries. This is the kind of stuff you share with your close friends, with your relatives. This is the kind of thing This is the kind of worry and stress that is shared among communities. And so even if it's happening in Alabama, people in Pennsylvania and people in Michigan and people in Georgia and people in Arizona and Nevada all can understand the the fear, the sadness and, um, you know, the real concern about the future that the people of Alabama, the families of Alabama feel. So um, it does not live and die in the state of Alabama. Michelle Goldberg, Tim Miller, thank you so much for your time tonight. Really appreciate you guys. We got a lot more to get to this evening, including the annual gathering of CPAC, where you can buy woke tears in a bottle and play January 6th pinball and also care a whole bunch of malarkey about Michelle Obama. But first, the judge presiding over Donald Trump's civil fraud trial smacks down his latest attempt to pay the piper or to delay paying the piper. Things could get very expensive for Mr. Trump very, very soon. We'll have more on that right after the break. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, consoling. Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. What happens when you can't pay the check and it's a big check and the restaurant is closing? Is that the right metaphor? I'm not sure. Last Friday, a New York judge ordered Donald Trump to pay $450 million, including interest, for a decades-long fraud where he lied about his net worth to cheat the system. And now Mr. Trump is trying his best to delay the reckoning. In addition to vowing to appeal this ruling, last night Trump's lawyers asked the judge here, Judge Arthur and Goron, for a 30-day stay a pause that would essentially push back the deadline when Trump has to pay up. Once Judge Angoran's ruling is official, once the clerk enters it into the system, which could happen as soon as tomorrow morning, then the clock starts. Trump's legal team will have 30 days to file its appeal. But in order for Trump to do that, he must first post bond which means putting down the entire $450 million, the damages, plus interest. 
Every day Trump fails to do so, once the clock starts, he will owe an additional $87,000 in interest. Every day. That is a lot of money and not a lot of time. And today, in a short, very terse email, Judge Angoron denied Trump's request for more time. You have failed to explain, much less justify, any basis for a stay. I am confident that the appellate division will protect your appellate rights. Joining me now to discuss is Lisa Rubin, MSNBC legal analyst, and everybody's not-so-secret weapon uh, at this point. Lisa, thank you for being here. Um, First off, Judge Angoron's email is... um, it's almost as if he wanted to write back unsubscribe, like take me off this mailing list. I have no interest in dealing with you on any of these matters anymore. Uh, did you read that as particularly, um, shall we say, sharp or is that pro forma? Judge Goran can be kind of sharp. He is very tolerant until he's not. Yeah. That's the best way I would describe it. However, a colleague wrote me a text today after seeing that email and he said, he's done. Yeah. And my response was, He was done in November, Mm -hmm. right? They exhausted his patience many months ago. And now it is not redounded to Donald Trump's favor. So the question is, you know, he, the clock could effectively begin this week, tomorrow. So yes, ASAP. Correct. If Donald Trump can't find someone to give him a cool half a billion or thereabouts, Mm -hmm. what is the next practical step for Letitia James? So let's say that Donald Trump does not post this bond. Then Letitia James has to start taking steps towards what's called executing on the judgment. She can either do that by trying to seize his personal property. She can also do that by trying to seize bank accounts. But when we're talking about the properties at issue in this case, I would just caution people who think that Tish James can go out and get 40 Wall Street for the state. Put a sign on the door that says seized. Right. And like for sale immediately. That's not how this is going to work. There are a lot of steps in between here and there. And on top of that, Donald Trump has lots of creditors. Tish James is not his only prospective creditor. As of tomorrow, she'll be a judgment creditor. But Donald Trump continues to have outstanding loans in the tens of millions or even hundreds of millions of dollars with respect to the very same properties that are at issue in this New York civil fraud trial. Does this, I think we have a a little graphic of the number of creditors that Trump's had, which may be illegible, but gives you a sense of the numbers. A lot of creditors, right? Is it an arms race here? Like if, if Tish James starts calling in the debts, Does that then uh, scare other creditors potentially who are like, oh, maybe he's not going to be solvent for that much longer? I mean, could that be a domino effect? Well, not only that, but if she obtains a judgment lien, which is basically a legal piece of paper that allows her to start seizing property and effectively prevent him from selling things, that in and of itself might be an event of default Mm. under some of his outstanding loans, which will allow a perspective, you know, a particular lender to go out and keep the collateral. So there are a lot of complex moving parts here involving Donald Trump's business empire, the various lenders and creditors that he has. And she'll have to figure out what assets he has that can quickly and easily be liquidated without other people online already. Wow. So, I mean, it could devolve into some kind of feeding frenzy to use 
a sort of colloquial term about it. It could. And it could also even prompt him to file for personal bankruptcy because, again, in this order, Donald Trump and the business entities that were found liable are what's called jointly and severally liable. That means that any one of them can be liable for the whole of the judgment attributed to them. That also means that Donald Trump can't escape this just by plunging those business entities themselves into bankruptcy because that that would leave him individually on the hook for the totality of it. The only way to escape it altogether would be to file for personal bankruptcy, which would place an automatic stay on further litigation, including judgment execution. Wow. Just walk me through a, a creditor. It can't be a creditor from, sorry, not a creditor, someone who may postpone for Trump. Yep. That person or that group cannot be based in New York City. Is that right? Or New York State? Well, under the ju- under the existing order, he can no longer borrow money from institutions that are registered or chartered in New York State. However, if you're appealing that judgment and staying that judgment, theoretically, that particular provision wouldn't be in effect while he appeals it. There are lots of financial institutions that probably fall outside of that. There are also wealthy, wealthy individuals. Mm -hmm. And as our colleague Rachel Maddow has said, even foreign countries that might have an interest in loaning this money to him. I asked the attorney general's office earlier this week, would we know as the public who loans Donald Trump this money? Would you even know as the attorney general's office? And I believe the answer was, we're not clear on that. It's not clear whether we'll have any transparency as to how he gets the money to post a bond if he does indeed post a bond. Yeah, well, that could be a significant national security concern, given the fact that he is running for the highest office in the land. And uh, foreign interference is a very real thing when you're talking about Donald Trump. Okay, Lisa Rubin, thank you for thank you for supplying us with important graphics, charts, and information this evening. <laughs> I sincerely appreciate it. I'll come it. back for something more exciting Just soon. stick around for the rest <laughs> of the hour. Still ahead tonight, President Biden meets with the family of Alexei Navalny while Republicans try not to say the words Putin and assassination in the same sentence. But first, are you interested in a handcrafted MAGA hammock? How about that bottle of woke tears? More from the world's weirdest flea market, the Conservative Political Action Conference, next. Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com app to download. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. It was like the world's weirdest flea market. There were bedazzled handguns and a January 6th pinball machine where the goal was to get the balls into a mini version of the Capitol while Trump's speech from the ellipse that day blared on repeat. And plenty of, let's call it, art depicting Donald Trump. CPAC, the annual Conservative Political Action Conference, is apparently just as bad as you might have imagined. 
If you wanted to own the libs, you could pick up one of these MAGA hammocks that quote unquote swing right. You can get one that says something like fake news for the low price of $500. Or you could just buy a bottle of woke tears, $20 for a six pack. To be clear, that is just water. But the most interesting thing we saw at CPAC today did not come from a merch tent. The most interesting thing at CPAC today was this. The left's power brokers, Barack and Michelle, working in conjunction with the deep state, FBI, CIA, all of the the agencies that we know are so deeply corrupt, they will make some sort of move. Biden will step aside or be pushed aside. Uh, and that they'll try at the convention to go with Kamala. The most devout Democrat constituency is black women. So if they were to bounce Kamala, that that voting block would be absolutely enraged. The only way you square that circle is by running another woman of color, and Michelle uh, meets that that thing. That's right. Barack and Michelle Obama, working in conjunction with the deep state, are going to push President Biden aside. And then Kamala Harris or Michelle Obama will take his place. If you think that is insane, or if the optics of an entirely white panel peddling conspiracy theories about two prominent black women makes you, say, uncomfortable, consider the title of this panel. Ladies and gentlemen, up next, catfight, Michelle versus Kamala. The only problem anyone seemed to have with the title catfight was this. Catfight, Kamala versus uh, Michelle. Why are you ruining catfights for us? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what else would you call a conversation about two of the most accomplished and influential black women in America? Believe it or not, this is actually not the most problematic or racially problematic conversation Republicans have had this week about one of the Democrats' most reliable voting blocks. We're going to bring you the conversation that literally takes the cake. Coming right up next. Even the sneaker thing. I was on social media last night. Very interesting. As you see, black support eroding from Joe Biden. This is connecting with black America because they love sneakers. They're into sneakers. They love the, you know, this is a big deal, certainly in, in the inner city. So when you have Trump roll out his sneaker line, they're like, wait a minute, this is cool. He's reaching them on a level that defies and is above politics. They love that. That was how Raymond Arroyo, a Fox News contributor and the author of children's books, including The Spider Who Saved Christmas. That is how Mr. Raymond Arroyo assessed Trump's standing in black America following the launch of his $399 Never Surrender High Tops. A surefire way to bring inner city black voters into the MAGA tent because they love sneakers. Not substantive policy proposals on racial equity or quality health care or economic freedom, but because they love sneakers. If conservatives are trying to attract black voters, they have a very funny way of showing it using thinly veiled racist tropes. Luckily for us, MSNBC correspondent Tremaine Lee has been on the ground talking to black voters about what they actually want and why some may at least consider voting for Donald Trump. Joining me now is Tremaine Lee, MSNBC correspondent and host of the podcast Into America Presents Uncounted Millions, The Power of Reparations. We are going to talk about that in a second, Tremaine. It's such a pleasure to have you here. I thought, man, can Tremaine talk about how gross this is? I think, can you? I I mean, first of all, 
gold sneakers. That's what black America wants. That's going to make them think Trump that, is that's cool. That's it. That's, that's all. It. We've been here for a few hundred News years. News to me. <laughs> Redlining. <Is> <laughs> You know, deprivation of all forms, lack of access to health care and quality education and housing. But it's just sneakers. It was so insulting. What's amazing is my, uh, you know, social media has been blowing up in my DMs. You know, I reposted something about sneakers and everyone's going crazy. This is maddening, especially given we think about the great wealth disparities in this country, the ongoing suffering of of so many communities that have been deprived um, access to full citizenship in, in so many ways. But the cynical idiocy that He's, he's operating above politics because some ugly behind gold sneakers, that's what's going to get it for you? No. It's insulting. I do wonder, though, because you have spent this time interviewing black men in America about what they want from their political leaders. Some of them are interested, curious, maybe even supporting Donald Trump. When you hear, when, when you sort of think about them and their value set, if they hear something like that, if they see these high top sneakers and the way the right wing is pushing them as the answer to black yeah. America's prayers, does not... Does that not make them question whether the Republican Party is the right place for them? In all honesty, the people I talk to are less, um, you know, enchanted somehow with the Republican Party and Donald Trump than they are saying that the Democrats haven't done a good job of coming to us and messaging properly. Mm. And we're sick and tired of being beholden. And there are all these promises that are never met. So it's not this idea of dangling literally something shiny from their eyes. Some foolishness. Black voters, even those who are you know, have some interesting political ideas. They are savvy enough and and black voters are practical and pragmatic. It's not going to be some sneakers that's going to get you to vote for Donald Trump. Right. But I do wonder if there's at all a deterrent effect from like, for example, CPAC, which is underway right now, has a panel entitled Catfight Michelle versus Kamala, which Mm. is, you know, um, using Kamala Harris as kind of a straw man, as as a scare tactic for white conservatives who worry about what the Biden presidency second term would mean using Michelle Obama. Actually, we should play a little bit of sound from what they said about Michelle Obama, just so that um, the racism is front and center. Let's hear it. Since Bill Clinton was our first black president, that makes her technically, she would be our first black woman president, right? Yeah. I, I guess so. Well, I, I, and Kamala could be our first black woman president. And Michelle will Look, look, to be clear. <laughs> the insinuation in the right wing on that stage is that Michelle Obama is somehow not a woman. Right. I just wonder, um, when you have garbage like that, spoken about someone who is so deeply meaningful, not just to black America, but to Americans and anybody who respects the offices of the presidency and the first lady. Is that not a deterrent to black folks who might otherwise be giving Republicans a shot? I keep asking you this like I want it to be. And and it's okay if it's not. I I, I don't think it will matter to the type of people that would be voting um, for for far right wing white supremacist kind of (laughs) candidates. It's not going to be you have to end up. Here's the thing. To be black in America, you always have to be navigating and deciding the lesser of two, three or four or five evils. evils. Anyway, if you are a, you know, from Detroit and you're in the working class and you're a union guy, you still have to hang around with some guys who might be a little racist, who also might vote in your interest. And so that's not super surprising. But again, it's still such a small margin of black voters who are, uh, you know, find some appeal in that anyway. Can we talk about what black voters actually do want rather than this sort of off-putting language is being Mm -hmm. spouted about them on the stage of CPAC? You have done you have an incredible series about reparations that is out now. And um, 
we talk about reparations often in as a theoretical idea, mm-hmm. but the fact is there are a very small number of black folks who in the aftermath of the Civil War actually received reparations. Can you tell a little to the audience who has to the audience who has not heard the podcast yeah. yet a little bit of the story of Gabriel Coakley? This story is one that is brand new to me and will be brand new to most you know, viewers of this program and listening to the podcast. Gabriel Coakley, beginning in the early 1850s, started to free his family. He was already a free man and a successful businessman. He sold oysters. He, he was somehow able to you know, um, pull together enough money to buy his family's freedom. Washington, D.C. had a big population of free people, free black people, who also lived right next door to enslaved black people, including some families. And so his wife, his sister, their six, his six children were all still enslaved. So he began to purchase their freedom, courageous enough. And then in 1862, um, you know, Abraham Lincoln said, we, we can't be in the midst of this civil war demanding freedom for enslaved people. And in the Washington, in Washington, D.C., there are still slaves. So he, he signed the um, Compensated Emancipation Act of 1862, which freed the enslaved people in the district, but it also paid off the enslavers saying, hey, reparations gonna, it's reparations for slavery. So the federal government, for the first time, paid reparations for slavery, but for white enslavers. Now, what you had to do is you had to, you know, bring up your receipts, describe your property you, you'd be losing, and they would pay you and prove loyalty. Say you were loyal to the union. And so I'm looking at this list, thousand names, the most powerful people, the founder of the, the Willard Hotel, the founder of Griggs Bank, the sitting secretary of the Supreme Court, a key advisor to Lincoln, all of this is getting paid for their lost property. Their and lost slaves. Their lost slaves, their humans who you know, suffered through tortured servitude. And out of nowhere, this name, Gabriel Coakley, pops up, a black man, his paid reparations. He found a loophole because there was still slavery in the district. He never registered his family as free people. And so technically they were still his property. And And so so he becomes able to get reparations, get reparations. It was Gabriel Coakley, but also five other names of black people, a woman who purchased her husband, um, someone else who who purchased her son when 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 he was just a boy. And so we wrestle with this idea of what it would have meant, what could have been. And what we see through the, the family line of Gabriel Coakley, doctors, lawyers, deans of colleges, um, you know, savvy business, uh, uh, someone who won the National Medal of Freedom. Wow. It's what, a story of what the power what of economic been. enfranchisement And that's what do. black people want, because what has been denied us since we've been here is full access to the fruits of America. We talk about redlining, uh, the lack of giving of, of GI loans so that after you serve your country, you can come yeah. home and buy a nice home. Everything that Institutional racism. Institutional racism. Racism is so braided into this country, and we've never had full access from the the very air we breathe. I mean, Tremaine, it's just such a, I want to say like something corny, like tour de force, but it's so important to be hearing these stories right now when you have just such reductive garbage happening on elsewhere. I won't specify where. I encourage everybody to listen to the podcast. People who don't know, I have known you for been a while. It's been a long time. OMG. Tremaine Lee, <laughs> my friend, congratulations on the podcast. Thank you for joining me to talk tonight. Thank you for having me. Appreciate you. We have one more story up ahead. Just one more. MAGA World's double speak about the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. The New Yorker's Susan Glasser joins me to help me decode what it all means. That's next. Laura, we've seen Trump liken his legal woes and indictments to the death of Navalny in Russia. In what ways are the the two similar? 
Well, I think you would have to ask him exactly what he meant, but I think we're talking about targeting a political foe, and that's what you've seen happen with Joe Biden weaponizing his Department of Justice. Those are things you see happen in Russia to political opponents. And do you believe that Putin is responsible for the death of Navalny? I don't know enough to comment on that. That 28 seconds tells you everything you need to know about the Trump world position on the death of opposition leader Alexei Navalny. They want you to think that Trump is just like Navalny, that he too is being targeted by his political opponent. But also, they don't want to admit that Alexei Navalny was targeted by Putin, so actually, no comment. By contrast, President Biden has had no trouble articulating his position on this. He says Putin is responsible for Navalny's death and has called Putin a crazy SOB. Today, Biden met with the widow and daughter of Alexei Navalny, saying his legacy will carry on through people across Russia and around the world. Joining me now is Susan Glasser, staff writer at The New Yorker. Susan, are you at all surprised by the inability of prominent Republicans to admit that Putin killed Navalny? You know, this far into the Trump era that we seem to be living in the endless version of the Trump era, nothing is really surprising. But it's kind of grotesque, Alex. You know, here we are at the third anniversary of Putin's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. We are talking about hundreds of thousands, actually millions of Ukrainians whose lives have been forever changed by this. People displaced, killed, uh, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of Russians themselves dying as a result of this decision. Navalny being compared by Donald Trump to himself is 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 really a perversion and an embarrassment. And, uh, you know, to watch his family take over of the RNC includes someone who doesn't know the difference between Alexei Navalny and Donald Trump is really, um, it, it, it's not a good situation for a superpower, is it? Do you think, though, if you kind of sort of break down the resistance to admitting Putin assassinated Navalny among MAGA Republicans, do you think that they are terrified of Trump's retribution or do you think that they're legitimately enthralled by the strongman Putin? You know, there's an array of uh, motivations, shall we say, behind uh, the the different varieties of enabling that we see in today's Republican Party. Uh, some people uh, seem to be ambitious or, you know, trying out for positions in a future Trump administration. You have people like Lindsey Graham, who've been willing to jettison long held positions. He claimed to be the biggest defender of Ukraine, then decided at the last minute to uh, uh, abandon them and in, in not vote four billions of dollars worth of military assistance uh, and couldn't then show his face in Munich at the security conference after he did that. Uh, You know, Lindsey Graham seems to be somebody who knows the difference but has chosen uh, to follow Trump's line on Putin. I do think there is a kind of a a pro-Putin, pro-strongman wing of the Republican Party. It's not necessarily a majority, even of elected Republicans, but it's certainly a significant and growing minority in the House of Representatives. I think that chokehold of that faction over the House and over new Speaker Mike Johnson is one reason why the Ukraine aid has not come to a vote. Well, we have reporting today that Democrats are basically, uh, without saying the words, I'm going to say a discharge petition, um, effectively forcing a vote on Ukraine funding, and they need a majority of the House to sign on onto that. Do you think that there are enough, quote unquote, moderate Republicans, uh, emphasis on the quotes, who are going to be willing to buck Mike Johnson and the strongman enthusiasts in the Republican conference and vote with Democrats to secure funding for Ukraine? 
Well, look, uh, there's a reason that a discharge petition is such a rarely used or at least rarely successful parliamentary maneuver. It's very, very hard to pull that off. One of the dynamics that's been happening over the last few months, Alex, much to the detriment both of Ukraine and I think to America's national security uh, standing in the world, has been essentially uh, Republicans led by Trump who have made uh, taking Trump's position on Putin and on Ukraine a condition of loyalty. And since Trump makes loyalty basically the main ideological test in today's Republican Party. The fact that Ukraine has now become uh, on the checklist, I think, is very bad news for supporters of Ukraine. And that means that, you know, even moderate Republicans who are from districts that voted for Biden four years ago, remember, they're still members of the party. They want money for their competitive races. They want the former president not to attack them uh, in his social media feeds or on his uh, uh campaign rallies. And so there's a variety of reasons why they might be afraid to go up against the leader of the party on something like Ukraine. Well, we the discharge petition ripens, I believe, at the beginning of March. So we shall see what happens. Susan Glasser, it's always great to talk with you, Susan. Thanks for your time tonight. Great to be with you. That is our show for this evening.